Hello, and welcome back to Elderside, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 story, The Mask of the Red Death. This story was nominated by one of our listeners. Uh, it's everything that we're doing these days is something that was nominated by one of our listeners. But this listener was someone who won the ability to nominate a story by participating in the social media contest that we ran last year. In that contest, we asked listeners to help spread the word about the network, about our shows, by posting on Facebook and Twitter, by telling people in book groups on Reddit, also on Facebook, about us, about the shows that we do, about the projects that we do, and also just by sharing and retweeting our posts. We had a lot of engagement with that. I mean, a ton of engagement with that, and it was demonstrably helpful. We had close to a 15% increase in downloads across our shows after we ran that contest, and we are so very, very grateful to everyone who participated in that and made that possible for us. We've also gotten to do some really cool stuff from the prizes we gave away. This story is pretty awesome. We just did two episodes on Sand Kings, which is the other story that had made it onto the ballot this way. And the grand prize was a free episode commission, which the winner used to have us do an episode on the novel Bitter Seeds by Ian Tregulis, which we did over on ATOS. All of that was super awesome. And so we just want to say thank you to everyone who participated in this. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, it's been an awesome year on the show. Uh, we've been able to do so much. It's kind of unthinkable how much we've been able to do. Thanks to your support as support uh, Patreon supporters and listeners. And uh, boy, we're just so grateful. So Brandon, this story, The Mask of the Red Death, is a pretty big deal in our pop culture. It's one of the stories I think that people know about, even if they've never actually read any Poe. It's been adapted into well, everything into film, music, theater, painting, probably sculpture, although I don't know that offhand, actually. But, you know, <laughs> everything. It is frequently taught in high schools as well, maybe even middle schools, in fact. So before we actually get into the story, I just want to know about your experience with The Mask of the Red Death. When did you read this for the first time? Just uh, just for this episode. That, that was my first time. Uh, it's one post story I have not read, though I, you're right about its cultural ubiquity. I've known about it forever. As long as I can remember, I feel like I've known the title of this story. But this is the first time I read it. I'm surprised that this isn't something that you had in, in middle school. Yeah, no, we did. Uh, what did we do with Poe in middle school? Probably the Raven, maybe the Black Cat, uh, boy, the Goldbug. But that, yeah, we Poe was not a big part of uh, middle school or high school, though, you know, maybe one story every couple of years we did in, in English class. Yeah, I didn't read this story in a school setting either. We definitely did, you know, the, the Raven. We did the poem, The Raven, which is awesome. I want us to do the poem, The Raven at some point. And we did also, I actually, probably The Black Cat. Though, of course, I've read every Poe story multiple times, so I've lost sense of what some of the context were for my, my first reading. But I think Poe has a, a real attraction for teachers at the middle school and high school level in that the stories are generally quite short. This one is really short. This might actually even be Poe's shortest short story. It's uh, not even 2,500 words long. And uh, that's a real virtue when I think one of the struggles of being an English teacher at that level is just getting students to do the reading at all uh, to make it a little easier on them by being shorter. The story is also really visual. So I think there's all sorts of like cool projects that you could have students do to help them engage with the story. But yeah, the, the Black Cat 
the pit and the pendulum. Those are pretty short stories as well that also have some some angles in, I think, that educators can use to to reach adolescents. Uh, plus the cask of Amontillado. Can't forget that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this story. Take us away, Brandon. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The redness and the horror of blood. Well, so opens our second pandemic tale from Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) And from this fantastic opening, Poe goes on to describe the symptoms of the Red Death. There are sharp pains, dizziness, bleeding at the pores, especially from the face, leading to seizure and death all in the course of about half an hour. But one man, Prince Prospero, described as happy and dauntless and sagacious, has a plan to keep the Red Death from completely decimating all of the citizens of his dominion or, you know, principality in this case, which we quickly learn has already been more than decimated in a technical sense, as half of his dominion has become depopulated as a result of this disease. So Prince Prospero summons a thousand of his closest friends, courtiers, entertainers, and so on to come live with him in one of his, quote, castellated abbeys. Right. Let's be clear about uh, who these people are, uh, because class is going to be a major theme of this story. These people are the wealthy elite who are using their wealth to escape big population centers and go live in an isolated fortress. Uh, Prospero and these knights and dames, that's actually what, what Poe calls them, they do not care about Prospero's subjects here, uh, whatever their sort of legal status might be, whatever actual kind of system of of rule or government is in play here. We don't know the answer to any of those things, but these people, Prospero and these knights and dames, do not care about regular people. Uh, And in fact, in this paragraph, we even get the line, the external world could take care of itself. And so this is essentially the White House bunker and the leader does not care what happens to his people. That's the setup of this story. And I want to talk about what this bunker is called. Poe calls it a castellated abbey. Now, usually the word abbey means monastery. It's a place where monks live. In England, this can also refer to a place that used to be an abbey, but isn't anymore. Uh, This is a feature of the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII, when the crown seized really all monastic land and then sold that land off to rich people in order to raise money for a war. And so... Now, at this point, right under the reign of Henry VIII, and later you've got a class of rich people who are turning Gothic monasteries into houses. This word then also transforms, because of this, into a term that can be applied really to any old country estate, whether or not it ever used to be a monastery. It may actually be that it's still reserved for houses on land that used to be monastic, but the the building itself doesn't have to be. This is something that shows up all over English language literature, especially 19th century British literature. I mean, right, like I'm thinking of uh, Jane Austen novels, for example, right? And I think that that is just the sense that Poe means here. It's just an isolated estate. And in fact, we know that Prospero constructed the building that these thousand knights and dames are, uh, are taking refuge in. But it may be important that Poe's using the word abbey here in its religious connotation. That's something we can take up in the discussion. 
But the castellated part is also important because this is not merely a big estate. It is fortified, so outsiders cannot get in, uh, at least not without a fight. And that's something we should definitely keep in mind as well. But then I also just want to go back to putting the terms together, right? Castellated Abbey, because this term taken together, it employs really the two big images that we have of the Middle Ages in our pop culture, right? We've got the church and we've got castles. And that combines to give this story a gothic feel. But it is also acknowledging that the setup here is a literary allusion to a bit of medieval literature. This is the Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio, who wrote a fictional story about really the exact same setup. I mean, not exact same. It's a similar setup during the Black Death in Florence in the the 14th century. That is a short story cycle where a handful of wealthy people, so not a thousand, just a few, uh, but a few wealthy people have fled to a country estate. They're amusing themselves by telling each other stories. The entertainments here, they're going to be a bit different. Also, the outcome is going to be a bit different. (laughs) But even the very title of this story and the name of the disease in the story are meant to evoke this uh, illusion, right? The Red Death is like the Black Death, except it's red instead of black. Uh, Even the symptoms are similar. The Black Death is not actually a name that is contemporary to that pandemic in the 14th century. People just called it the you know, like the pestilence or the pest or the great mortality, uh, which is to say big death, uh, something like that. Anyway, uh, the name Black Death also does not actually refer to anything about the disease. The disease itself is the bubonic plague. But in our, our pop culture, the name Black Death, I think, really actually has come to you know, refer to the characteristics of the disease. And so saying Black Death for us conjures up images of people who are are dying while covered with black pustules. Uh, these are called buboes. That's the, the, you know, bubonic plague comes from that, or the bubonic part of bubonic plague comes from that, right? But, but victims of this disease are blackened. They've become blackened by these, uh, these, these pustules. And so Poe here has taken this idea and just made it red, right? There's scarlet stains on the face. So it's like literally a red mask that shows up on your face here. So all of that is just to say that we're meant to have gothic images in our minds as we go, though, to be fair to Poe, we don't really have to have images in our minds because Poe is going to describe the heck out of this castellated abbey to us. I mean, the story is mostly a description of this setting. Yeah, that that's that's most of the story is uh, his description here. It's a great story. I want to just really uh, emphasize a point you were trying to make, uh, and I think you made it. But uh, this just helps, I think, orient us towards the story today. The prince and his courtiers, the knights and dames, they're they're kind of the bad guys, and uh, <laughs> that's something that I need reminding of as I go through this story because, you know. I think they're making the smart move here. But anyway, let's move into some of this decoration and uh, description talk. So the prince had this castellated abbey decorated to his august and eccentric tastes. And the prince is kind of a weirdo. That's another thing that makes him a bad guy, I think. So this place is really decked out and it's very well stocked in terms of supplies. And once the thousand people are all brought in and settled, the prince, Prince Prospero, has his... Abbey welded shut so that no one can get in or out. And all that's really left to do then is to languish and to party. 
outside the walls is the Red Death, but those inside still have their Netflix account and stuff. So <laughs> there's really just not too much to worry about. Uh, after six months of this seclusion and isolation, we might say quarantine, the prince decides to throw a ball, uh, a masquerade of unusual magnificence. But before we get to that, Poe wants to tell us all about the rooms in which the masquerade is to be held. There are seven special rooms in this now palace that, uh, you know, these seven rooms make up an imperial suite. Each of these rooms really exemplify the bizarre tastes of the prince. And uh, we can kind of imagine what might be in these rooms, but this is really, the eccentricity of the room is really communicated to us through a uh, color scheme. So the first room is blue, the second is purple, the third is green, the fourth is orange, the fifth is white, the sixth is violet, but the seventh apartment is black. And all these rooms have like a stained window that... Uh, leads into the room and there's a, like a fire brazier lit outside. So you get like this not a combination of natural light and firelight that also casts light into this room. And most of those windows are stained the same color as the room, but the black room is stained scarlet, a kind of blood red. So all of these rooms are like pretty creepy, particularly this black room and it's a little strange, but yeah, it's fine. There's nothing to worry about here. Nothing ominous. Uh, <laughs> the black room though, I really want to emphasize this is the creepiest between the firelight from the brazier and the blood red window panes. And then everything else is velvet black. The room also contains an ebony grandfather clock within it. And every hour it chimes in such a loud and peculiar fashion that the whole party stops until the chimes pass. And this also lends itself to a kind of ominous mood that the party goers, you know, they do recover from every hour, but they have to stop each hour. And so there's this awareness, this hyper awareness of time, which I'm sure they've been aware of being trapped in this house for six months that keeps on intruding into the party. The bells from this clock are are so awesome. I mean, Poe tells us essentially that you know after they've paused, they've been disrupted, right? The party's been interrupted, I guess, by the the tolling of the the bells, the chiming of this clock, and they kind of have to psych themselves back up to partying again. It really deeply disturbs them, and it's really beautiful, really brilliant description. We're going to return to that in the discussion. But we got to talk about these rooms, Brandon. When I was 14, I was obsessed with these rooms. I loved this story. I mean, I, I, I still love it. I don't love it any less, though. I no longer read it every week like I did in eighth grade. I mean, it was it was not just an obsession. It was a compulsion at that point. But something else I was doing a lot when I was 14, and I suspect you were doing this as well, Brandon, was imagining how awesome it was going to be once I was fully an adult and had my independence. I mean, this is, you know, what teenagers do. I think for a lot of American teenagers, though, at least, you know, according to movies, this gets wrapped up in thinking about cars. I don't care about cars. I like walking everywhere, even if I have a car, which I do. But, you know, for me, this meant I was not thinking about cars as a sort of type of freedom. I was thinking a lot about what my home would be like when, you know, I had my own home. And I used to daydream about setting up a home with this exact decorating scheme. And I still think that would be cool. But I have also since discovered that 
Yeah, when you're an adult and you've got a home, that really just means that you never get to think about decorating at all because really all you're thinking about is fixing things or like worrying about <laughs> things that seem like they're going to need to be fixed soon and that sort of thing. But still, yeah, I think this would be cool. And this place, right, this imperial suite in Prospero's castellated abbey just looms large in my imagination. I, I still really wish that I, you know, and maybe could uh, actually decorate a home this way uh, at some point. Oh, yeah. Well, for me, it was uh, trick bookcases. And that's still a big part of my imagination about, you know, if I were ever to get an architect to design a home or modify an existing plan. Uh, color schemes are cool, but uh, trick bookcases are really all I care about. <laughs> Although my imagination has deteriorated to the point where I can no longer think what to put in a secret room <laughs> or how to decorate a secret passageway. So thanks being an adult. That's real great. Well, yeah, I think once you're an adult, you're like, wait, who am I hiding things from and why? Like, what? Am I? But, you know, right. when you're a teenager, I think you definitely you just don't want your parents to know about stuff. And look, I don't think trick bookshelves and cool, de cool color schemes are mutually exclusive. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> they better so, not be. Yeah, I think we can have we can have both. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, I want to explicate a little bit more about these uh, these rooms here, this color scheme, because Poe's description is really super detailed. I mean, it is the bulk of this story. So, yeah, it is seven rooms. They're arranged in an imperial suite, and what that means here is that one room leads into another but they can be closed off with doors. Like each individual compartment, each individual room can be closed off with doors. But at the same time, the doors are designed to fold all the way open and lay flush against the wall so that you don't even notice, in fact, that there are doors. And except for the first and the last room here, there is actually no way to get out of the suite. So people could close the doors, they could shut themselves in, say, like the second or the third room with no way out to the hallway, uh, at least not, you know, via a door anyway. Now, that's not actually what's happening here, but I just want people to see this in their mind's eye. So typically, a, a suite like this is one long series of rooms where you can stand in the first room and look all the way down to the end. In this case, that's going to be about 400 feet away based on the dimensions that, that Poe gives us. Or alternatively, right, you could stand in the middle and admire the size that way. But in any case, in either case, it's meant to be overwhelming, right? Just the size of this suite. And these rooms are all 60 feet by 40 feet. So they're they're certainly larger than any room that I've ever had in any place I've ever lived. And I've lived in apartments that are smaller than, you know, just one of these rooms. So just to just to keep that picture in our, our minds here. But the point of all of this really is that in this case, Prospero has actually designed the room specifically so that you can't do that, so that you can't see all the way down the suite. From one room, you can only see the exit and then maybe a little bit of the next room, but that is, that's it. So it's not really the immensity of this that, that he's going for. And the, the reason for this or, or you know, why this works is that the rooms are arranged in a series of sharp turns. And as you said, Brandon, the rooms have stained glass windows on two of the walls across from each other. And these are going to be, you know, not the walls, but the doors, right? So there's four walls, something on each wall, the, the, the doors in and out, or, you know, the ways you get through the rooms are opposite each other. And then the windows are on the other walls, also opposite from each other. And the windows are stained the, the same color as the room, right? So that the light coming through it bays the room in the same color as the decor. So, you know, they're purple or orange or blue and so on. And you said natural light here. 
Brandon, I, I don't think that that's quite right, though, because the deal here is that these windows aren't on exterior walls, right? These windows are not exposed to the outside, so they're not getting any type of, like, you know, sunlight or, or moonlight, I guess, as the case would be, you know, at this time of night when the party's happening. But what's happening here is that the entire suite is actually ringed by uh, a corridor, and in that corridor, Prospero has fires going next to the windows, and so it's only this firelight that filters through the colored glass to give the desired effect. But anyway, though, the point of this from Prospero's perspective is that these lights, these firelights coming from outside of the room being filtered through these, this colored stained glass, that's the only light that's available in the entire suite. There are no lamps or candles inside the rooms. So it's also just not very bright in here, right? And then the light in each room is colored. And then the last thing to add about this suite is that the rooms run from east to west. The blue room is in the east and the black room is in the west. So super detailed, uh, weird color scheme. We get direction, we get shape, we get dimensions of the rooms. All of this probably has to mean something. We'll be taking that up in the discussion. <laughs> Boy, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> Glenn, you said that the rooms are 60 by 40. For those of you who have a square foot calculator handy. That's 2,400 square feet. Uh, that's the size. That's twice the size of the house that I live in now. Right. It's, and this is the biggest space I've ever lived in. Yeah. So that, that's huge, but Poe needed to make these rooms this big because he's got a thousand people there. So, you know, it's a massive amount of space. I guess that's the point <laughs> making. <laughs> but also probably still crowded with a thousand people in there. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's get back to this masquerade. Things are great. And even though it's kind of like dark and creepy and like you got colored light splashing on you, everyone is mostly having an awesome time, like waltzing and cavorting. And there's lots of great food and super weird decorations. Poe described some of these as like being in a grotesque style. And there was a combination of beauty and the bizarre and wanton and disgusting behavior and all of it just intermingled together where everyone is letting loose. And I think this is something we can easily imagine kind of coming out of a, a year of quarantine. I'll quote the story here to give a deeper sense of the mood and the scene. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a lit, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which streamed the rays from the tripods. Uh, that's the brazier light that we've been talking about. And also the, the dreams are the masqueraders there should have given that context up front, but uh, <laughs> hopefully you've read this story anyway, like everyone is avoiding this velvet room basically, but no one can ignore its existence because the clock chime is so intrusive. And finally, the clock chimes midnight with 12 soundings of the clock's bells. The music ceases and everything calms for a moment. 
And some people who are beginning to have a moment of reflection about just like what the hell it is they're up to as a result of this longer pause in the party start to notice that there's another masked figure at the party, someone they haven't seen yet or before. And so people start whispering about this person and the rumor of this new person's presence spreads and it leads to terror and horror and disgust. Poe says, reusing a phrase that he used in Metzengerstein, that this new arrival outherited Herod. And what's really going on here is that this person's costume is just really in poor taste. This new presence is wearing like grave clothes, like burial garments, and their mask is the sort of face that you'd see on someone who has died of the Red Death. It's like frozen in this Richter, and it's bloody red, and even the clothes are flecked with blood. Yeah, everybody knows this person who shows up to the party <laughs> in an inappropriate costume, right? Uh, I think that probably the best strategy for dealing with this type of person is just to not acknowledge the costume at all. Like, just pretend it doesn't exist. They're not wearing a costume. Uh, that's not going to work in this case, of course, as we will we will see. But in this particular instance, uh, scholars of this story, scholars of Poe point to a, a real world source of this idea here for Poe, which is that during the 1832 cholera outbreak in Paris, someone held a, a party very much like this. And one of the guests dressed up as cholera or, you know, really what that means. I mean, the newspapers reported it that way, but what they really mean is death, right? And this was widely reported. This is something that, you know, Poe would have known about. It was fairly sensational, you know, gossip news, and so, you know, this is something that people have been doing for a super long time. And so that could be an alternative strategy for dealing with this person who shows up to your Halloween party this way, just by pointing out that this whole thing, it's pretty cliche. It's not original. It's not clever. It's played out, man. Yeah, Let exactly. <laughs> you show up as a giant ape, you know, that's the trick. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually Prospero is the one who sees this figure and Prospero calls this guy out on his costume. He screams out, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? And he calls upon his guests to capture and unmask this party pooper. But no one acts. They're all kind of paralyzed in fear. So the figure just walks out of the room and he makes his way through a few rooms. That, and, and this moment where the party people are just kind of frozen and not doing what he commands, uh, it makes Prince Prospero remember the old phrase about, you know, when you want to do something right, you've got to do it yourself. So <laughs> Prospero draws his dagger and pursues the man all the way to the black room, eventually catching up with him. But when the person dressed up as the Red Death turns to confront Prospero, Prospero drops his dagger and he falls to the ground, dying. And then the rest of the party goers converge on the man who is now standing in the shadow of the ebony clock. It's totally not symbolism. And the party goers try to tear off this man's costume and mask, only to realize that these things are attached to no corporeal figure. It is the Red Death himself that has visited this party, coming like a thief in the night. And soon, each of the partygoers die from the affliction. Eventually, the flames of the braziers die out, and darkness and decay, and the Red Death held illimitable dominion 
overall. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, what an ending. I mean, we all know that this is coming, right? As we're reading the story, we we see where it's going to go. But still, Poe delivers this end with such tension and, and, and drama. It's just, it's visceral. It gives me goosebumps every time. And I, I've literally read this story over a hundred times and it still works for me every single time. Poe is making two allusions here at the end. The first one that I think is the most striking is in the setting of the scene or like the staging of the scene, I guess is what I mean. There's a lot of Macbeth going on here. There's this emphasis on the dagger. And then the layout here is that Prospero. And, you know, by the way, I know that name is from the Tempest and not Macbeth, but still, I think this is Macbeth here, right? Prospero is looking out over his party guests at this you know, this ghastly figure here, right? In this costume. Well, not a costume, I suppose, really, right? But looking out over this ghastly, looking out over his guests at this ghastly figure. But this figure is kind of intangible to the the guests. And here it's because they're in some kind of awe. But it feels to me a lot like the dinner scene in Macbeth where Banquo's ghost shows up and only Macbeth can see him. And that really just doubles the effect for me, I think, because that's also just one of the creepiest scenes in, in literature is that that moment. And it's a moment of, of real madness as, as well. And so and also guilt. So that might actually be something that's going on here. We can get into that a little bit more in the discussion. The other illusion that's happening here is not Shakespearean. It's biblical. There is a, a ton of scholarship on this story. I read some of it this week, and by some, I mean probably about 500 pages, but that is actually still only some of it, it turns out. But at any rate, there's a great article by Patrick Cheney at Penn State. It's called Poe's Use of the Tempest and the Bible in the Mask of the Red Death. And Cheney points out what Poe is up to here with these biblical illusions. And so as as you mentioned, Brandon, this starts out with this uh, line about out-heriting Herod, and then it builds up to this final paragraph where we get the phrase, like a thief in the night, which is from the, the Bible. It's from 1 Thessalonians, where the, the thing that is coming like a thief in the night is the day of the Lord. It's not a pandemic. And so it refers to a good thing, not a bad thing. And specifically, it refers to Christ's power, where here... The power it's referring to is the power of death. And then we also get here darkness and decay and the red death holding dominion over all, which perverts what Paul says in Romans, uh, also you know, book of the Bible, which is that death has no more dominion now that Christ's crucifixion has redeemed everyone. And also these three dominion holders here are listed as proper nouns. They're, they're kind of a mockery of the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Instead, we get darkness, decay, and the red death also capitalized the same way that the, the trinity would be. And then finally here, Cheney focuses on Poe's line, and one by one, drop the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel. And Cheney here shows that Poe is combining two liquids, I guess, that uh, provide a type of salvation in scripture, right? One of them is the blood of Christ, and the other is the dew of heaven, which is something from the, the early books of the Old Testament. Anyway, I just want to say this is a really great article. This is probably my favorite article that I read. It's easily found on JSTOR. So if your library gives you access to that, I really recommend checking it out. We will almost certainly return to some of these ideas in the discussion. Yeah, that's awesome. I was really hoping you were going to dig deep into the illusions of this story because there are 
so many. And I even just in the uh, Norton Critical Edition of Poe that that I was reading from, just the introduction to this story had me, I don't know, salivating over the <laughs> like elus- <laughs> illusions in this story and the sim- symbolism and everything going on. And uh, I'm really glad you did the commentary this episode. Yeah, really fun thing actually happened uh, in my my household this week with how much work I was doing on this story, which is disproportionate to how much work normally gets done, which is that every night around dinner time, uh, Finch would see me bringing a stack of reading materials into the, the room where I'm going to uh, do my reading. And he would, you know, more or less ask what I was going to do. And I would say, I got to go read about Poe. And uh, <laughs> he would repeat that to me by saying, read Poe. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Several times I would pop my head out, actually, just to check on him, see what he was up to. This this time of the day is one of the times where we like to let him have a little independence. I would poke my head around, and he'd actually be doing something that he was really interested in doing, and would more or less tell me to go away so that he could keep doing that by himself, like he didn't want me interrupting his play. But he would do it by pointing back to the room I was in and saying, read Poe, like a kind of imperative. <laughs> and, uh, That's awesome. It's priceless, yeah. So I was very happy about it about that. Well, yeah, I'm excited to get into the discussion. But before we do that, we actually want to talk about uh, a new feature of the show, and that is advertising. We've been advertising on the other shows on the network for really for over a year now, I guess. But we've only just this year started advertising on Elder Sign. Even though Elder Sign is the flagship show, uh, it's possible there was even an ad at the top of this episode that you heard. And yeah, we need the revenue from the ads to keep the network on the air But we don't really love the idea of doing ads for random stuff that just doesn't pertain to the show or, you know, hold any interest to us. Things like, you know, car insurance or artisanal soaps, I I guess, though, (laughs) to be fair to artisanal soaps, I think if you're you're actually making artisanal soaps in the shape of a skull or, you know, soap that looks like a Thule or something that I would be into. But the point here is that we would much rather advertise things that we care about and that we therefore think at least some of you care about as well. And so if you in the audience have something that you have created, something you would like to let other people know about, maybe it's your new book, a short story you've had published, maybe it's music or a movie or a role-playing game, maybe it's another podcast, or you know, even literature-themed artisanal soap, <laughs> if you've got something like that, we would love to help you spread the word about it. Our rats are low. It's it's rates, Glenn. Our rates are low. And my God. <laughs> it, it's it, it, says, it says rats. You wrote this. It says rats. <laughs> I feel like that joke actually needs a bit of explanation here, given that uh, absolutely zero people voted for us to cover an episode of the TV show Angel uh, for episode 100, despite the fact that it is the greatest uh, representation of occult detectives. But yeah, that is a gag from the uh, the TV show angel but uh anyway <laughs> we have made a tab on the website at claytemplemedia.com it's called advertising where you can in fact check out the rates and those rates are indeed quite low by industry standards we've got a number of options there uh, including an option where you can come on the show as a guest host to talk about a story that you love and also tell people about your own work and so if you're interested in that or advertising on the show in general Check that out on the website, and then you can get in touch with us by email at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. All right, well, let's get into the discussion now. And I I think that we have to start with the elephant in the room. Uh, The elephant in the room in this case is the reason, in fact, that 
our, our listener who, who won this competition, use that nomination in order to have us cover this story. And that is the fact that we have all been living through a plague. We've all been living through this global pandemic, the COVID pandemic. This certainly has changed the way that I'm thinking about this story as I read it now. It does not quite feel like some abstract fantasy world, even though it, it clearly is that, right? But this reading, this time, I could not help but think about the world of this story a lot more than I ever have before. And so let's talk about how we read this story here in the time of COVID. And uh, let's just start by, I think, returning to the disease itself and, and doing a little bit of uh, armchair epidemiology, which is, you know, a thing neither of us is actually qualified to do. But, not remotely. Uh, we, <laughs> but we've got some doctors in the audience, so uh, they can set us straight here. But let's just start with the description here, right? So the red death causes sharp pains, uh, sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores. Those are the, the three symptoms you're going to get. And then Poe writes that from the seizure of the disease, it takes 30 minutes to die. And the question I have about this is, what does Poe mean by seizure? I guess really, it's uh, at what point does the 30-minute countdown clock start? Yeah, that was grammatically questionable to me in the way that Poe wrote this. And so I'll just read the sentence that he uses to describe this 30 minute period. And he says, and the whole seizure progress and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. So to me, in that sense, you know, grammatically speaking, seizure there doesn't mean like you have a seizure. It means you're seized by the disease. And then from that moment till death, 30 minutes pass, which is, uh, you know, that that was the interpretation I gave in the recap, though. Um, There might be other uh, interpretations there. Right. Absolutely. I think that's what the word seizure there means. And so I think, you know, it's got to be, you know, grip, I guess, actually, is a word that we could use, right? We do use seizure usually to mean, you know, some kind of convulsion or, or, or something like that. But it's just meaning seizing. So grip, right? The grip of the disease, I think, is what this means. But I, I guess I'm taking that and it sounds like you are too, Brandon, to mean that the, the countdown clock starts from the first symptom, right? You You get the sharp pain, you know, and now you're in the grip of the disease. The disease has seized you and now you've got 30 minutes. Is that, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. And I also, I mean, I used seizure in kind of both terms in the recap as well, that that sharp pain is a kind of seizing as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I'm at with the, with the countdown clock. Yeah. Okay. But I think also there's a question here that I don't think we can actually answer, right. But is, you know, how long, is the incubation period for this disease. This is something that has mattered a lot with with COVID transmission is how long you're carrying the disease around in you without having these symptoms. And hey, maybe it's six months for this disease. One thing we don't know at all, and I don't think was something Poe was thinking about was the actual like etiology of the disease. (laughs) Right. Not not at all. (laughs) So like, you know, when I was doing the recap, I wanted to use that word so bad. And now I'm really glad I was able to. But um, it's one of my favorite (laughs) words in the English language. But uh, yeah, the the origins and causes of the disease, they are not explored at all in this story. And I actually had to look up like when the germ theory of disease was a big deal and like when that really made changes in uh, medical investigation and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's more or less contemporary-ish with this story, um, but Poe was thinking about a wholly different aspect of the disease than um, the mere etiology. So, like, you know, basically, 
I guess what you're driving at here is that somebody could have come in to the party with the disease and not known for six months. Yes, exactly. Right. If we were really going to yeah, turn this story, you know, into a science fiction story. If we were looking at this like a kind of hard science fiction story about uh, about a disease, right? That's a, a question or a conclusion, I guess, that we might actually come to. But absolutely, Poe is not thinking about this in this way at all. It's not what he's interested in here in this story, and it's also not really the way that people at all are quite thinking about diseases here in the the first half of the nineteenth century. We talked about this when we covered the Sphinx which is that other story you referred to that is also about fleeing from uh, a disease. And this, in that case, it was cholera. And cholera is... It is the epidemic of the of the day, right? This is the type of thing that Poe would be thinking about. It's it's something Poe is experiencing. I mean, I don't mean he's like actually contracted cholera at some point, but the cholera epidemics are something that happen frequently in his world and affect his life in very real ways. And this story still is, as we talked about with the Sphinx, this story is still a decade away from Jon Snow, not the Game of Thrones Jon Snow, but the Dr. Jon Snow figuring out what cholera even is. So Poe is writing this story in a world that is actually gripped by a recurring disease that happens all over the world in these local epidemics that is mysterious, that no one understands. And that's clearly what is happening with the Red Death here, right? We're not meant to understand any of these things about it. Right. But if we're reading it backwards, which is uh, one way you and I sometimes like to do literary criticism, um, which is to say, uh, we read ourselves into the story in a sense of uh, an interpretive method of like, what does the story bring out of us that we can bring to the story? And then we do a lot of research after that. <laughs> um, but, <Right. laughs> you know, the, the, my first instinct in reading the story by the way, you always have to do the research afterwards. Otherwise, you're just talking about yourself. But, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things that really uh, brought out of me in this story was even though I know the tone of this story, and I emphasize this really early in the recap, was that these people are, you know, depicted as selfish and depraved in certain ways. Uh, Prospero's doing the right thing, right? Like, yeah, he didn't get a good mix of classes in there. He didn't save his people. He's not a noble prince, blah, blah, blah. But like, a quarantine's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. We don't know, uh, again, in this story, how the disease is transmitted, but they definitely have a sense here that it's transmitted somehow. And that if we can get a bunch of people who aren't sick, and uh, I think that's really a big part of the 30 minute countdown clock is that people feel like this means you're really either dead or you're not sick with this thing. Though, of course, yeah, as I said, with COVID, we know that uh, these incubation periods can actually be quite long. These asymptomatic uh, incubation periods where you are, in fact, contagious, you know, measured in, in uh, weeks, actually, for us with COVID, right? I don't think that there's a disease that incubates for six months, but hey, you know, we can read that. But yeah, nothing really about how it's transmitted here either, right? That's just not part of the story. But I think we have to assume that the Red Death is airborne, the way that it functions here, right? Yeah, that's my assumption. Uh, definitely, probably airborne. Definitely, right. probably. <laughs> and, you know, if it's not, so if it, and, you know, if it's not the case that it's a long incubation period and that all of these uh, people here at the Castellated Abbey have actually already been sick for months and it's just now that they've been, you know, seized by the symptoms, uh, then we also know that, that masks don't work here, right? If it's being transmitted at the party, I guess we know that masks don't work. They're not effective against the Red Death. 
Yeah, I mean, these are not uh, face masks that like are surgical That's masks. That's true. Though, <laughs> yeah, either. yeah, these are not N95 masks. Yeah, your yeah. mouth and nose can just be putting <laughs> anything out there through a lot of these masks, I imagine. Uh, yeah, in fact, actually, they all have their mouths open because otherwise, how are you drinking the wine? And that's really the point of the party. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah, covering your eyes, it turns out, doesn't uh, limit the spread of <laughs> <Yeah>. airborne <laughs> diseases. Well, my cheekbones are covered, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One last question on, on this line of thinking here, this kind of epidemiology of the Red Death, is to talk about the mortality of this disease. So all the revelers die, which suggests a 100% mortality rate. But the impetus for this escape to the castellated abbey is that Prospero's dominions have been half depopulated, which is to say a 50% mortality rate. Unless, I guess, we're imagining that uh, half the population had not actually contracted the disease, I guess. Uh, and in fact, I guess that's actually really the question is just what do you what do you make of that, Brandon? Yeah, for me, I read it as half the population hadn't contracted the disease. Um, not that it has a 50 percent mortality rate. So. Yeah. What else can I say about that? Yeah, no, I think that, that is what there is to say about it. So, let's move into what I think is probably the more interesting stuff and, and certainly the ways that, that COVID has affected most people around the planet, which is to think about the social and economic consequences of this pandemic. And I'll start by asking you this question, Brandon. How many people are at the Castellated Abbey? Uh, I feel like the number is pretty squarely at a thousand. Uh, that that's the number that's repeated, right? Yeah, it's a, a thousand and one, I guess, because it's pros. It's, uh, because it's plus a thousand. Yep, right. Yeah, that's the revelers. But then there also are all these entertainers, right? Poe gives us an entire sentence that tells us exactly what types of entertainers are here. Uh, people who do improvisations, buffoons. There's a, a whole list of entertainers. They're also, although not mentioned, right? But there must be cooks and there must be some kind of cleaning staff, right? Because I don't think Prospero himself, for example, is lighting the fires in the braziers. Someone else is doing that. So there are other people here. Some of them are mentioned. It's the entertainers, but they're not counted here. <laughs> like they're not part of the thousand. And there have to be other people here supporting the material existence of these wealthy people, these uh, knights and dames of the court here. But they're also not counted among the dead at the end. So do they die? I'm really glad you brought this up because it hadn't even occurred to me because they don't even really exist in the story, right? I mean, they kind of do. The entertainers I kind of read as being uh, included in that number of a thousand. Um, but you're right. The support staff, I mean, this isn't like... Uh, uh, island-based reality TV dating show where like they just don't show the people doing their own work, right? This is, uh, you know, like making the food for each other and doing all this stuff uh, that they have to do on those shows. Don't ask me why I know this. Uh, yeah, am I into these shows? You're asking too many questions. Uh, so, but but um, yeah, this is a story that's really rooted in class systems on some level. And so I think we're supposed to just assume that there is all this staff that doesn't exist to the people of this class. And so the way they don't exist might be also the way they escape the, the Red Death, because it seems as though the Red Death explicitly goes after the revelers who fall. Right. Yeah. I wondered about this, too. And, and I, I should say that 
although I'm not going to point to any specific uh, articles that I read for this this section of the discussion, uh, people take for granted, they take as a given that everyone dies from the Red Death and that it's and that it's important that it is these wealthy people who thought that their wealth was going to allow them to escape the Red Death by saying, nope, death comes for all of us, uh, no matter how wealthy you are. But I just can't help but think, but yeah, all these, the, the musicians, the buffoons, the cooks, the cleaning staff, they, they're all dead too, right? It's, it's not only the wealthy people who have died in this story, though that is what Poe says. And I, I think, I guess, the evidence to suggest that there are other dead people here is that, you know, the emphasis here at the end or the image, I guess, at the end, right, is and then slowly, you know, the fires died out and and, and death or d- decay and the red death had dominion over all. So, you know, the fires went out. People weren't uh, there to put them out. They didn't stay in this house and continue living. So I assume that everybody's dead, too, though it would be interesting to you know stage this in such a way that the musicians just watch everybody die. They watch the yeah. party goers die. But they're the ones blowing air all over the place. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Just a few more questions along these lines. Then we'll get to the thing, you know, that the story is really about, like the symbolism of the colors and so on. I just want to ask more about sort of like what is happening to this society as it's hit by the Red Death. Okay. So. You know, we've got some support staff here. We've got entertainers here. And then we've got, you know, Prospero himself. And then we've got the thousand knights and dames from his court. But are there children here? Or did Prospero only invite knights and dames who don't have dependents? I don't think that there are children here. There's no real indication that there are any children in the castle, at least in my reading of the story. So... <sighs> Even though this castle is set up as a kind of refuge, I mean, even your last question just got me thinking even more about like, how did he stockpile all the food if all the farmers are dead? Right. You know, where did all this stuff come from? Um, You know, did he have people go out and bring food from the villages and then take all that with him? How's the food stored? What it's, this is all, you know, Marxist stuff. Like what's the material <laughs> reality right. of the story? Who was bringing the food from point A to, B to point B? You know, how's, what are the logistics here? That's not what this story is about. Um, but yeah, children are strangely absent from this story. And uh, I don't know, you've read this story a lot more than me. So you might've picked up a, a hint that I didn't see. No, I don't think there are any any children here. I don't think there are any dependents of any kind. I think it's it's these people. But that's really weird to think about, right? That he, Prospero has invited a thousand knights and dames of his court, but only people who don't have dependents. Like, is that what he's doing? Is he's drawing up the guest list? And how do people even know about this party? Is he like mailing invitations? Who delivers the mail in this in this world, right? I mean, all of these questions <laughs> I have about the logistics of how you throw this party party and how you invite people, how you choose who you're inviting. And the real horrifying place that I went to in, in thinking about this, Brandon, is that I started to think that just, I, I don't think that Prospero sat down and said, okay, but who's the people who don't have kids? Those are the people I'm going to invite because I'm not quarantining with kids. Just no way. I'm not doing that. Uh, the, that I don't think that he did that though. And so I just started to think that these people left their kids behind or their kids had already died from this disease. You know, maybe kids were more susceptible to this or something like this. There was just a real horror story about children here that I, I think is just, you know, behind the scenes. There's a, I mean, this phrase out Herod Herod here, we, we, we said it came from 
Metzengerstein, right? Which is about a young prince who kind of inherits too soon and throws decadent parties. And maybe I'm reading some of that as kind of baggage into this story where the one word that kind of jumps out to me about Prince Prospero is sagacious. Now that could mean old, right? He's an older prince, but it could also mean just he has some certain qualities of, of wisdom, but that doesn't maybe match up with a description of happy and dauntless. But I can't shake this feeling regardless that Prospero is a young prince who's gathering other young courtiers around him to kind of wait out this pandemic that's going to kill the other people. And then maybe they can restart the kingdom a little bit on their own terms. Uh, they're going to, you know, have a rough morning when they wake up and realize there are no farmers and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are going to have to do work, but yeah, there's just this sense that, you know, of being carefree and young, uh, that, uh, yeah, just leads to the, you know, uh, implied wickedness of Prince Prospero. So maybe, I don't know, maybe Poe's just not thinking about the logistics. Like this isn't a fantasy story in that sense. Right. I mean, I agree with that completely, but I do want to think about all the implications you've got here because Prospero's age is something that's going to matter when we talk about the the symbolism of the the rooms. And I definitely think you know, thinking along these lines, who's invited? Where are their their kids? Do they have kids? Uh, and thinking about Prospero himself, uh, Poe says nothing about a wife or children, despite the fact that that's really the first duty of the ruler in a in a monarchy is to uh, have offspring so that there can be a succession in the event of something happening. There's no mention of, of a wife and children for Prospero either. And so I think that has to mean that Prospero is young, perhaps only, you know, only recently having inherited the uh, rule himself. And maybe actually because like literally the Red Death just killed his dad. I mean, you know, might be actually what's happening in the background here, right? But I think a young person, uh, you know, that's definitely my reading of it as well. Yeah, it almost has to be in some ways. And, and you know, one of the ways in which it might not be, which kind of underlines the comeuppance that these characters experience at the end of the story, is that Prince Prospero is just also neglecting his duties to his people, right? So, like, that's kind of a theme of the story. Um, so him not having kids or having a wife is just another example of that neglect that is leading in some sense to the downfall of the kingdom that requires him to have some kind of comeuppance. I want to say one more thing on this, uh, this topic before we move into the other stuff here in this story, which is uh, to go back, to circle back to something you said about, hey, where's food coming from? What's going on here? Right. <laughs> because th again, that also not really in the story, except that Poe does talk about Prospero having supplies and provisions. And so I do think that actually they've just stocked up here. Of course, this is pre-modern. So like just everything's been salted and preserved. There's no refrigerators here. And I, I just like to think, you know, if I was going to adapt this story, they render it a little bit more uh, materialistic the way that we've been doing here. They give this a little more context. I, I just want to envision here that Prospero's been keeping track of the provisions and yeah, they're out. 
that's why they're going to, he's like, let's just throw this party. It's just time <laughs> to throw, we'll, just, we'll drink up the last of the booze. We'll eat the last of the food because we've only got 10 days left anyway. And there's no way to get any more food because none of us know how to do anything in the world. We don't know how to harvest anything. So, you know. And this, this, uh, this party is actually, they're drinking Mountain Dew and eating beef jerky, Oreo cookies and Doritos. Because <laughs> that's all that's left. <laughs> oh, I mean, this story is begging for a sort of fraternity adapt, set adaptation. absolutely (laughs) all right well i think that we have uh done our diligence here on the the brief that the listener who nominated this story gave us to think about this story in the time of covid so yeah let's let's move into the sort of classic ways of thinking about this story let's talk about the symbolism let's start with the rooms brandon uh, I'll just describe them again so that we can all be uh, you know on the same page. I'll have that fresh for us, right? So there's uh, there's seven rooms. They're each with a different color. That's blue, purple, green, orange, white, violet, and then black. And then the black room, of course, has the red light in it. And the rooms run from east to west. And I don't want to break this down. I mean, I want us to break this down, but I'm not going to break this down into discrete questions for you, Brandon. I'm just going to ask... Do the rooms have any symbolic meaning <laughs> to you, given this these characteristics? They don't to me. I mean, the last room clearly does. This is kind of the the the, the room of death, you know, where time is represented and held in, and uh, you have the scarlet and the black, and just kind of this these you know final vision of the the red death. Um, but the other rooms are kind of described in the text as just being the result of the prince's own taste and. I don't really have an a- access to his private archive of symbolism. And so I didn't put a whole lot of thought into what these princes might mean. I mean, in, into what these rooms might mean. I mean, purple is royalty. White could be purity. Uh, blue might be like earth or something, though green is typically the color. I think these uh, this time period would have thought is the color of earth. Ar- like orange, though, yellow, I don't know. Rainbow, maybe. Right, except not. This is these are not the colors or order of colors of the rainbow. <laughs> right. Yeah, people have put a ton of work into thinking about the colors. The colors are almost a kind of distraction. I I, I don't mean to mean that they don't mean anything. I don't mean to say that they don't mean anything, but they they're it's it's such a puzzle that. That's the thing we immediately jump on. It was actually the middle part of the description I just gave you to prompt this, Brandon, but it's the one you jump to, right? And it's the most difficult one. Right, let's maybe tackle the other ones first, which is just to say there's seven, right? Like that's a, a significant number in, in Abrahamic religious thinking, right? Seven. Right. It's the color of completion or perfection. Really, I prefer to think of it as like uh, completion or fulfillment rather than perfection. But I'm no scholar. And uh, yeah, but it's, you know, it's all over. It's an important number in in Old Testament scripture in particular. Just get seven and seven times seven a lot. Uh, But then also, I think probably what really matters for this story, right, is how much seven is significant in the last book of the, the Bible which is to say the book of revelations right where we get the you know the seven trumpets and the the seven seals right and 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 there, there's a lot more things there are seven of actually in that book it's a, this is all over the apocalyptic images in that book and so yeah 
that makes sense here because, hey, this is a pretty apocalyptic story. Uh, something else that scholars have, have really pointed to about the direction of the rooms running from east to west is just to say that that's the course of the sun over the day. And so there's a sense of time there in the direction of the rooms. This seems to be something that people generally, you know, scholars, I mean, take for granted. But it's really the colors here that I, I, I have no idea either, right? I mean, it's totally a puzzle. It doesn't really seem to go in any order, really, to me, to make a whole lot of sense. But scholars have really worked on this. There are a lot of articles, a lot of journal articles by scholars looking at this. I will not run through all of them, but I'm going to point out some highlights. I'll present some highlights to you, Brandon, because this was actually some pretty fun reading as well. A lot of scholars link the colors up with this idea of the the travel of the sun from east to west and think, well, this is just kind of the colors of the day, right? You get that kind of pre-dawn blue moving into purple as the day is starting, and then green's a nice summer morning, orange is kind of the hot of the afternoon, and white's the real hot of the real latest part of the day, and then you get, you know, violet as the sun is setting again, and then black into night, and, you know, maybe... But I don't think that's the way I would describe that. I don't think I buy that. No. <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> doesn't feel right to me either. No, no. Uh, another one that I had is actually from uh, Patrick Cheney. That's the scholar who wrote this article uh, about the uh, biblical allusions here. And in that same article, he talks about the colors. He tries to argue that the colors here in the room are representing the colors of the vestments in specifically in a, a Catholic liturgy. And you know, that's kind of true, but there's so many colors here that actually they show up in just about any religious litur liturgy, any liturgy from any religion, not just different denominations of Christianity. And I don't really think that that's something I buy on kind of a macro level. I, I would buy this if the colors were specific to the garments, you know, or the vestments that uh, priests wore for like one particular type of ceremony or festival, like if these were the colors of the vestments that priests wear to celebrate Easter or Christmas or something, for example, I would think, oh yeah, that's that seems like that might have some resonance here that that supports the other things that Cheney was saying about the the biblical allusions here, uh showing the red death, you know, replacing Christ, conquering Christ in some way. But I don't actually buy that this is what's going on with the color symbolism here at all. No, I really like the idea of seven and connecting that to the book of Revelation. And then when we think about the use of the phrase, the thief in the night being about God's judgment, which also the book of Revelation is about and the return of plagues and people dying and all this stuff, the Old Testament plagues, I mean, the way they're echoed in the book of Revelation, there is something compelling about the argument for these rooms in terms of their number representing maybe different seals or scrolls being broken for the apocalypse, uh, the Christian apocalypse, um, and that this really represents God's judgment. But that concept really undermines the notion that this isn't about, this is a uh, kind of uh, an upending of God's judgment, that the plague has done something uh, that God didn't intend on some level. So it's a, it's a curious, it's a curious puzzle. 
Well, I'm going to give you two more (laughs) interpretations of the colors here, Brandon. One is by a scholar named uh, H.H. Bell. And this idea here, and and you'll see why I'm I'm wanting to pitch this one to you. uh, Bell claims that the the colors represent the stages of Prospero's life. And so, for example, purple, as you said, Brandon, indicates royalty. So that would represent the time or the stage at which Prospero acceded to the throne Orange is a color that we associate with autumn, and so therefore it refers to the autumn of his life as he's getting into middle age. And then, you know, white, that's something we associate with the hair of old people. So white must represent actual old age. And so, you know, that's why white follows orange. Black, of course, is going to mean death. And, you know, we can see with the purple being the second color of the room that Prospero became, you know, ruler when he was young, but he's old now and maybe even approaching his death. And I think all of that's just a ton of special pleading there. And I also think that it doesn't work with our understanding of Prospero as a young person, which I stand by. I think we're right about that. Yeah, I do too. I just, there's something, uh, I mean, it's, you know, primarily because we read Metz Engerstein, I think. (laughs) I think that Poe has this kind of young, reckless prince type of character on his mind, but uh, I just, I can't shake it. Well, the last one I want to pitch to you is, uh, I think, where we've been heading all along. And this is from scholar Eric Duplessis. And uh, he argues that um, it's all a joke. There is no symbolic meaning to really any of this, but especially to the colors. And he makes this argument based on an article that Poe published actually the same year that this story came out, a little bit earlier in 1842. Uh, I say article, it was actually a review of um, one of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's stories uh, or story collections, I should say. And, you know, Hawthorne, we've we've read Hawthorne here on the show. Uh, But Poe took... Hawthorne to task for using too much allegory. And Poe really just expresses in this critical review of Hawthorne's book that he just despises allegory. And so (laughs) Eric Duplessis here argues that this is a fake allegory designed to make fun of the whole stupid idea of allegory. He's trying to show that it's dumb. It's dumb because all you do is get people arguing about uh, what symbols mean and losing sight of the actual like context of the story and losing sight of the whole, the sort of moral of the story. And um, I mean, that's certainly right. Almost. I mean, I'd say more than half of the articles on this story are about the color symbolism. And I think I like this idea the best, that there is no symbolic meaning and it's all a bit of a, all a bit of a joke. Yeah, that makes the most sense to me as well. I mean, this is kind of the trouble I think we get into on the Gene Wolf podcast <laughs> as well, when they're like, when we're like, but there's a story here. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of symbols and puzzles and stuff, but like, we're here for the story. And I, yeah, I don't hate allegory, uh, the way that, that Poe does. We know that Poe and Hawthorne had a real public beef uh, right. with one another, but this is hilarious. And Poe was a mischievous man. I mean, the whole, we talked about the Raven earlier. That's just something he did to prove to critics that poetry can be written. All you need to do is come up with a couple words and a rhyme scheme. Yeah. And you can write a poem. <laughs> yeah. I, so, you know, I might be convinced, you know, in the future by someone else's argument about the color symbolism, but I, I think I like this argument the best, that it's a joke. It does, I don't think to me that undermines the story at all. I don't think it undermines the seriousness of the story one bit. No, it works quite well with it because this whole story is about neglect and revelry and people who do things uh, that are not serious at all in the face of something serious and who focus on the wrong things when 
they could be pulling their resources towards helping more people and doing all this other sort of good with their wealth. They waste it on themselves. Well, let's talk very briefly about the the clock, and that'll be the last bit that we'll do here on the the symbolism before we talk about the the writing craft of the story and and talk about some adaptations in a a number of different uh, mediums as well. But yeah, the the clock, right? That's a huge feature of this story. It's ebony clock sitting there squarely in the black room. It's got this loud chime that goes off, you know, every hour, you know, tolls the number of the hours, and it pauses the party, and it really is having a psychological effect on the revelers. And it's clearly, we know as readers, I think even if it's our first time reading the story, even if it's the first time reading the story fresh in the magazine in 1842, we know it is counting down uh, until everyone is going to die. But does the clock have any symbolism beyond that type of device, do you think? I don't feel like it does. I mean, it could represent that, you know, time stops for no man or something along those lines. But uh, I really think what's going on here is that the party goers have been here for six months. I mean, the, the concept of the passage of time is pretty important to the story. There's 30 minutes to the Red Death from when you're seized by it until you die. There is six months in the castle, and then this clock keeps showing up. So, yeah, we could say it's symbolic, but it's really literal in that these people who are at this party literally cannot escape the march of time and what the potential uh, destruction that the time has for them is, is going to visit upon them, right? So, like, they know that They can't escape death. Perhaps they can delay it, but they're not escaping it entirely. And even that sense of delay of time is given to us in that it's the furthest room away from the party, but the clock is unignorable. And that if they do get the red death, they've got 30 minutes. So I think the the feeling that Poe is going for here, that he's trying to communicate to the reader, is that nobody can escape time zone devices, you know, and whether that's a symbol or just really literally what's going on in this story, I guess, is up for debate. Yeah, I don't know that the clock has any other symbolism besides that. Lots of scholars have written about that as well. I won't present really any of those to you here, Brandon, except for one that I thought was very cool. And uh, this comes from scholar Brett Zimmerman, who works at uh, York University uh, in in Toronto in Canada, not uh, York University in uh, in Yorkshire in the UK. And he's written quite a bit actually about the Mask of the Red Death. He's got uh, a chapter in his uh, monograph that's, uh, oh, the title I don't have in front of me, but it's about uh, rhetoric in uh, in Poe's work. Uh, but he's also got some other articles about this as well. But in that book, he, he looks at the crazy layout of the the rooms uh, because you know Poe makes such a big deal of the fact that it's not this suite in the sense that the, you know you can just look from one end down to the other you know the length of uh, you know several you know football fields right that they're uh, irregular they've got these sharp turns and Zimmerman has diagrammed that and his conclusion or what he tries to you know prove to us is that the rooms are actually arranged in such a way that they form the shape of half of a clock right so from like the 6 to the 12 ending at at midnight right that that's the array of the of the room and i i thought that was pretty cool yeah that it's a really cool design choice 
Yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, I'm obsessed with the design choice of this. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, okay. Thank thank you for telling me exactly what I have to do if I'm ever able to construct my own my own house, which, you know, I will not. But, <laughs> you know, that's uh, it's there. I will say too, I, I really enjoyed uh, Brett Zimmerman's uh, uh, writing style. There was another scholar who did not like this idea and wrote a, uh, a, a pretty negative review of his book that was really based just on the fact that he didn't like this one part of the book. And uh, Zimmerman wrote a reply to that that was published in a in a journal, and it was the snarkiest thing I've ever read. <laughs> he, he literally ended a, uh, a paragraph uh, of it responding to the scholar with the phrase, my bad. I mean, it was in Latin, you know, mea culpa. <laughs> I just <laughs> said, my bad. Uh, it was so snarky. It was a real joy to read. So I recommend, you know, if people have JSTOR accounts or, you know, access to JSTOR through their library and are looking to fill 30 minutes, I, I recommend that that bit of academic exchange there. It was pretty fun. But let's leave all of that behind and uh, let's talk about the writing craft here because this story, as I joked in the recap, is maybe less of a story than it is a description of some cool looking rooms. And uh, I want to compare that to the Clark Ashton Smith story that we did, I guess, a year ago or so, uh, A Night in Malniant, which I said on the episode when we did that, reminded me a lot of Poe. I know I invoked the bells, his poem, The Bells, when we did that, but yeah, it, it, this story has a lot of DNA with that, right? I think uh, Clark Ashton Smith, Smith had this story in mind, I think, when he was writing A Night in Malniant. And uh you did not like that story, or at least did not like that A Night in Malniant was less of a story than it was a description of wandering around a city. And so I just have to ask, Brandon, did you like this story? Oh, I love this story. I really did. This story worked because it wasn't... Okay, so even though the bulk of the story is caught up with uh, cool interior decorating tips, <laughs> it was a real story. Too. And uh, it worked well in this current moment when I read it as well, which I can't imagine a situation in my life where like a night in Malniant is is going to be relevant to my situation. Maybe if I pick up a, a bad habit and end up sleeping in a gutter or something in a city with a, you know, the maybe maybe then I'll be like, Oh, I see it now. Um, but you know, me dreaming about a funeral of someone I loved whose death maybe I caused and wandering around a city is nowhere near as evocative to me as what Poe has pulled off in this story, which is the kind of like we talked a lot, we joked a lot about like the logistics of this story, but it's really a kind of a fable. It's a kind of parable. It's like, Hey, if you know, you got you got wealth. You should help people instead of holding up and uh, inviting all the wealthy people you know to avoid the problems of the world. So the story has a moral that I found relatable that I like. Uh, the descriptions are rich. The setting is fantastic, and there's real dread and gloom in this story as well. So it really kind of hit all the right notes for me. You described it as evocative, and it is a super evocative story, despite the fact that, yeah, there's not much plot, right? It really is this big description, 
there's a party. And then, hey, yeah, a uh, dude shows up in an inappropriate costume. Turns out he's <laughs> actually the Red Death and uh, and everybody dies. Or, well, in between, you know, Prospero chases after him. There's the dagger, right? But then everybody dies. It's not a lot happening. It could all be described very quickly just like that. But yet it is so evocative. This story is such a huge part of our pop culture. And not just because people have read this story and enjoyed it and people are still teaching it in you know, middle school and high school English classes, but in fact, because it's been adapted into other media. And uh, that's where I want to go next with the discussion. I've got a few uh, adaptations that I want to present. Brandon, you've got one that you're going to talk about that I'm, I'm really excited for because I did not have a chance <laughs> to revisit it before uh, coming on the, the, the air to, today. But I'm going to start by talking about ballet. And uh, I think people generally don't like ballet. Like, I think there are, you know, fewer ballet fans than there are people who would describe themselves as disliking ballet. <laughs> I don't know ballet all that well, but I will say that ballet, I think, is actually pretty cool if you know the story, right? Ballet is inherently uh, an adaptation. I mean, that's probably not literally true. There are almost certainly ballets that are original stories, but most ballet, most classic ballet, is an adaptation of some popular story that people know. The thing that's happened with ballets that were uh, set to music in, say, the 19th century or the 18th century is that we don't know those stories anymore either, right? Even though we probably all know some of the music for the Nutcracker. Um, I mean, I use it before our Christmas episodes on Patreon, right? Is the bumper <laughs> music there? People know the Nutcracker music and maybe know the story. But if you know the story, you actually know it because of the ballet, not the other way around, right? And that's generally the case with these stories. But actually, if you know this story and it's a story that matters to you, uh, maybe it's like I don't know, Game of Thrones or, or Stranger Things, right? Something that's like immensely popular in our pop culture and then said, yeah, what if we turn that into dance, right? What if we told Lord of the Rings as ballet, people would be interested in that, right? You're thinking, well, how? Are, what's the adaptation? We know the dance Tom Bombadil does, but like, what's Aragorn's dance, right? What's that going to look like? <laughs> what's that music going to sound like? That's that's a hook. That's an investment. But because we aren't going to most ballet with that, we're, I think people are just generally not into it. And and that and that describes me as well. But this is a story that has been adapted to ballet a lot. I've actually never seen it performed, but I would be super into that. It's actually received a ton of attention uh, in the decade pre-COVID, obviously not now where all performing arts is, is suffering, but uh, in the, you know, the 2010s, there were a lot of ballet companies all over the United States, uh, especially setting this to usually pre-existing music. So people weren't commissioning, ballet companies weren't commissioning new music. They were taking pre-existing music they could get the rights to. And really doing the adaptation as the the choreography of the the dance. And so uh, probably that will come back, especially given that uh, COVID, right? I think people are going to be interested in continuing this, actually. And so I would recommend that to, to well, myself. I want to go check that out, but to, to listeners as well. But I want to talk about some, some older ballets that uh, actually have original music to them, uh, where the, the composers are, are really kind of the big uh, selling point there, at least through my experience of them. And these are uh, Edward Collins and, and Joseph Holbrook. Uh, I'll run through these a little bit. Uh, Edward Collins was a, an American composer, in fact, a Chicagoan, so that, that, that warms my heart there. Uh, he died in 1951. He was born in the 1880s. 
he trained as a, a, a young man, actually, as an adolescent, and then early, uh, you know, in his twenties, he trained as a, a, a pianist, a conductor, and also a composer. Largely did that in Germany, and largely did that right before the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, he was already working in Germany, actually, uh, at the outbreak of the First World War, and of course, the Collins came home and uh, joined the U.S. Army to go back and fight Germany in the First World War. And because he had lived in Germany and was fluent in German, he, he served as an interpreter, uh, essentially, in, uh, in, his, in his unit. But um, that's an interesting biographical detail. But let's talk about the Mask of the Red Death here, right? So uh, Collins, not famous at all today as a composer. I, you, you know, you're just not going to find him performed. I mean, you might, but it's pretty rare. But he wrote this ballet, or wrote the music for this ballet interpretation or adaptation of the Mask of the Red Death. I have no knowledge, actually, of the performance history of this thing. I assume it was done originally for someplace in Chicago, but that just might not be true. It runs about 30 minutes. Uh, in fact, it might run exactly 30 minutes, which that would be cool, <laughs> right? I think about that <laughs> running the exact time of the Red Death, but it probably doesn't. But it's about 30 minutes. The style of the music is... It's more late romantic than 20th century classical music, it, uh, especially in the beginning. It starts off with really just setting the move, and then it moves into the masked ball with something that's a little bit waltz-like, uh, though that the waltz-like stuff actually does sound a little more 20th century. In fact, really, it kind of sounds like the Vulcan music from the Star Trek, the original series episode, Amok Time, which post-dates this, of course, but uh, sounds a little bit like a Vulcan waltz, to be honest. It's actually quite cool. <laughs> but the, I think the real selling point to the music here is that Collins uses the the clock. He uses a, a bell or you know some kind of gong, I, I guess, to give us the chiming of the clock, but it interrupts the music, right? The orchestra is just playing, 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 and they are on a note, they're on a beat, and the bell comes in and it stops. And it's really awesome. And then Collins starts the music up again with like frantic strings and woodwinds. And it, this is just for a moment before getting back into something that is, you know, composed music. And I think this really captures the emotional response to the clock that Poe describes. And especially the, the few lines that we get where Poe is describing the emotional response by the musicians. It's really awesome. And then finally, the music continues after we get the like final uh, bell of the clock where we know now that the Red Death is here. The music is different. Uh, and it's just a really great uh, effect. I don't know if there's any staging of this ballet that's been you know video recorded that people could see, but the recording of the music is actually something that's available. It was performed for some reason by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, which did seven volumes of music by Collins, like everything he ever composed. No idea why they did that, but uh, I'm glad they did because this music's available. Yeah, you got to. If it's out there and it's not recorded, you got to put it in the archive somehow, you know? <laughs> somebody's somebody's got to do it. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And that's going to be the lead in here, I think, for talking about Joseph Holbrook, who was uh, not an American composer. He's an English composer, but also died in the 1950s, uh, in this case, born in the 1870s. He was a, a virtuoso pianist. That's really how he made a living. But he also was a prolific composer. And Holbrook loved 
Poe. He wrote more than 30 compositions devoted to Poe. He wrote a ballet for Mask of the Red Death. That's why he's here. That's why I'm talking about him. But he also wrote symphonic poems for The Raven, uh, the poem uh, Ulalumi, the stories, The Cask of Amontillado, also The Pit and the Pendulum. He did a, uh, a choral piece for The Bells. Almost none of this work is recorded. Uh, you can get some of the symphonic music for the post stuff if you look around. You can also get the the prelude to the bells, which is to say the orchestral part before anyone would be singing. It's very expensive, of course, to get a choir, uh, to record a choir, right? That's twice as many uh, performers now that you're having to pay. Uh, it requires a bigger room and more re- recording equipment and so on. But you can at least get the prelude to it. Um, yeah, somebody, maybe it's the Royal Scottish National Orchestra can jump on this. <laughs> But yeah, I want to hear the entirety of the choral piece for Poe's poem, The the Bells. I want that. But anyway, the real thing here is that the ballet for The Mask of the Red Death also just is not there. And uh, somebody should record it. So I know this exists, but I've never been able to hear it. Uh, though if it's been recorded somewhere, if there's, you know, was staged somewhere and someone's got even just like a, I don't know, an eight track recording from the 70s or something, uh, I would like to know about that. I would like to hear that. This uh, this really helps me understand some of the decisions to the film adaptation, with starring Vincent Price and directed by Roger Corman, which is essentially on many levels a musical. Right? There's a couple big dance scenes in that movie, uh, lots of dancing and performing. There's a strange one that I'll talk about in just a moment. <laughs> but yeah, the adaptation I'm going to talk about is the film adaptation from 1964, starring Vincent Price, in which. Prince Prospero is just about the most wicked person you can imagine existing explicitly, so much so that he's a a Satan worshiper. And this movie is very psychedelic in the 60s kind of sense of that, which means it's full of bright colors and vibrant colors. Uh, It's full of strange camera work and and kind of uh, hypnotic scenes. Uh, And not only is Prince Prospero a Satanist, but pretty much everybody at his house is, and he's kind of like their <laughs> king. And so it it tries to do what Poe does in the story, which is to say, rather than implying that these people deserve to die or have a comeuppance, it gives us a reason why. They're explicitly wicked. And uh, this movie's amazing. Uh, I rented it for four bucks on on Amazon. I recommend doing that, uh, making some popcorn. You know, have your kids watch it. It's a crazy movie. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. think that's actual advice. Just to well, be clear, <laughs> who can say? Depending on the age of your kid, don't I guess. have your kids watch this movie. That's the official stance of Clay Double Media. What's What's better than than kids watching Vincent Price horror movies from the nineteen sixties? <laughs> They're great, though. This movie's fantastic, and it's insane on so many levels, so many of the choices. It looks like an early TNG Star Trek set. I mean, they got some plants and 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 stuff, and they built really elaborate sets. The way they rec- the the way they represent the rooms is really fascinating. Although they're really only about, I don't know. 80 square feet instead of 2,400 square feet. Uh, the black room, the velvet room is the satanic temple and, uh, Prospero, you know, rolls into town, uh, on his way to his castle and he almost runs over a child. Um, and then he wants to kill two people for standing up to him for this action and the people have the confidence to do this because a holy man, all dressed in red, has promised them deliverance from the wickedness of Prince Prospero. 
And the way he's offering these people deliverance is through the red death. Uh, so it's kind of a dark bargain that everybody's making here. Prospero then kidnaps a woman from the village that he wants to use as his, uh, I don't know, satanic love slave in a sense. And she's openly Christian and so doesn't want to do this. But then to save some other villagers, she kind of agrees to it. And then the Red Death intervenes. The red robed holy man intervenes and lets her escape with her uh, lover so that they can escape and then everybody else dies. And it's wild. It's absolutely wild and kind of unhinged and kind of fantastic and unsettling as well. It's a horror movie and you're going to feel the horror on a lot of levels. I watched this movie when I was, well, I'd read the story already before. So I must have seen this movie probably a was around eighth grade. It might have been ninth grade, I suppose, and uh, was real excited about it. I must have rented this from Blockbuster, in fact, and uh, uh, I was real excited because this you know, was a point in my life when I was reading this story a, a lot. Uh, eighth grade, I said I was reading this story every week, and that's that's literally true. Then in ninth grade, I gave a speech in English class about how Edgar Allan Poe was my hero. Um, other people were talking about like firefighters and uh, you know, their dads and that sort of thing. I picked Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe and started that speech with a description of people dying of tuberculosis. Like, you know, Caught my audience's attention, or at least it was supposed to. Anyway, I was obsessed, was so excited to find this movie at the, at the Blockbuster, or maybe it was the family video, and uh, was weirded out by it. Real weirded out by it. But I, uh, I would love to watch it again. Yeah, it's almost too adult for even adults in terms of what we think of as cinema today. Like there's not anything like super explicit in the movie, but it's so weird. It's so weird that this is the direction they took the story in on. So almost every decision is insane. And uh, I recommend it if you like horror movies. And I just predicted that we're going to see more Mask of the Red Death in ballet. I'm sure that we will see it on stage as well. I mean, I guess ballet's on stage, but I mean, plays, play adaptations. I, I've got to think that that post-COVID, someone's going to want to to do this story as a film again. I, you know, I don't know what that would necessarily look like, in what ways COVID would influence, a, you know, an adaptation of this story uh, into a drama that you could, you know, film. But I would be real interested in in seeing that, seeing what uh, what this story looks like, you know, from a writer's perspective post-COVID. That would be amazing. And one one of the charms of the film adaptation is its 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 its, its cheapness. Uh, the sets are very cheap looking. Everything looks like it's a, an expensive stage production, but a very cheap film. And so there's a charm to that from these like 60s Roger Corman movies that it's almost like the Harryhausen effect where you the fakeness of it is as compelling as if it were real or maybe even more compelling because you're witnessing these choices take place. You know, how does Harryhausen move the creature to make it look real is almost as cool as the, like that's going on in your brain watching something like that happen. It's almost cooler than just seeing uh, something that looks like a real computer animated thing like a real cartoon <laughs> right and this has that same effect it has a very staged quality to it that lends a weight to the movie that something more real or, or even more grotesque might might not be able to capture 
Well, I think that's the charm of so many of these Corman films. And Vincent Price is in many of them. Uh, the, the, the Venn diagram of, of Corman, Vincent Price, and Poe is pretty thick. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's <laughs> pretty well shaded. And I recommend all of them, maybe a little tongue in cheek, but I would make a great scary movie night just watching uh, you know three or four of those of those yeah, movies. They're short too. I mean, they're they're ninety minutes, so they just they they move quick. Well, I want to talk about one more medium here before we close out the episode. It's going to, going to be sad for me that we're done with this story, too, that we'll, we'll never do it again, because I've been so looking forward to this, really, <laughs> since we started even talking about the idea of Elder Sign. But what I want to do is talk about the way that this has been adapted in music. And obviously, I talked about that with ballet, but that was music that's written to support something that's happening on a stage. It's meant to go with a, a stage performance. But I want to talk about music that is just meant for for you know the concert hall or you know, ear earbuds. So most of us, of course, listen to music. I guess your car speakers, perhaps as well. Uh, the three pieces I want to talk about. The first is by the American composer Christopher Roos. He worked from the 1980s up until his death in uh, early 2019. He wrote a short symphonic composition. Uh, symphonic composition is a term I've used a few times here, actually, which I realized maybe I should have glossed. That just means using the orchestra, or maybe not the full orchestra, but a big part of the orchestra, multi-instrumental, uh, more than uh, just a few string instruments or a few horn instruments. Uh, that's really what that means. So he wrote a short symphonic composition for the New York Philharmonic called Prospero's Rooms. That's immediately going to be my jam, right? To take these rooms that I'm obsessed <laughs> with and turn them into music. Amazing. And it really is this very cool musical journey through the seven rooms. I had a lot of fun this week following along as the music changes from room to room, kind of trying to track where that happens. And like, is that what I think orange would sound like, you know, in this situation is <laughs> very cool. It's a fun exercise. It's something I'm looking forward to doing with Finch someday. So I'd recommend people check that out. I'll just move right into the next piece I want to talk about, which is by a Danish composer named Bent Sorensen. He also started working in the 1980s. Uh, he's still writing music. He works in London now. He has a, an early piece of his from 1990 called The Mask of the Red Death. Uh, this is also short. Uh, it's about 10 minutes long. That's that's about how long the Christopher Roos piece is as well. And this is a, 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 a piano piece. It's solo piano. And it is frantic and haunting. It actually feels like it's from the perspective of the masked figure like the, you know the plague itself or the, the you know the costume of the red death there's a moment where it just kind of turns into chopsticks in this like crazy <laughs> sort of way it, it actually i think would work really well as a kind of score for the Corman film, actually, it captures that same kind of just like frantic kind of just like, what am I watching this that that, that <laughs> film has? It's a very cool, very unsettling piece. It's available on an album called uh, La Note, which also includes the piano concerto uh, of the same name, which I will say is also excellent and creepy that, that could also be the score to some kind of weird fiction film. Uh, these are very cool pieces. Uh, and I'll, I'll put notes, I guess, in the... And I'll put links, I guess, in the, the show notes in case people want to want to check these things out. But now let's come to the, the third, and this will be the last thing that we talk about. But this, this third piece is a very short uh, violin piece by Edward W. Hardy, who is a young American violinist. Uh, he's only in his 20s. 
He wrote the music for the play The Woodsman, which is an adaptation of the Wizard of Oz story by Baum, uh, the, the Tin Woodsman of Oz. This is a really cool play that got a, a lot of press and won a lot of awards, I guess about a decade ago. It is a play that mixes live actors with puppets. So, you know, it's got some DNA with Roger Corman there, I guess, in some <laughs> in some sense. But it mixes live actors with puppets. It has some songs, but it has... I think really zero spoken dialogue and even the songs are actually few mostly it's just actors and puppets uh performing you know like body acting to Hardy's composition it's to, to Hardy's music it's very cool. You can watch this on the internet and I, I really recommend it. But the reason that we're actually talking about Hardy here is be, is that he wrote three short violin pieces that were inspired by Poe. And one of them is inspired by The Mask of the Red Death. Uh, this one is called A Fantasy. I really liked this piece, Brandon. This is one that you've listened to as well. How did you respond to it? I liked it a lot. I've been listening to a lot of Baroque uh, music while I read. Uh, there are just like endless playlists of that on YouTube that are like three to six hours long. So I can just like set them playing and uh, kind of keep on my tasks that I'm that I'm needing to get done uh, with reading and, and writing and things like that. And this this piece really has that kind of Baroque element to it. The music feels uh, structured in some ways that is, uh, I, I guess I just don't know quite how to describe it other than Baroque. Um, you get that feeling of decadence from the music uh, and excitement and partying, but it's still very structured. And I think it's a wonderful piece. Yeah, I think it's got a lot of DNA it shares with with a waltz, but it, it does feel kind of like a Baroque version of a waltz. And I don't have any technical music training at all. Brandon, I know you at least took piano lessons at some point, though I might be over I might be overstating here. No, I your, took piano lessons music. at some point for 13 years. So so great. So you can interpret what I'm trying to say into actual music talk here. But it sounds to me like there, there's not something atonal about this piece, but something a little discordant. I don't know what is causing that effect, but it's certainly unsettling. Right. Well, that's what that's what I mean, is that there's there's it just misses being Baroque on these levels. That's really about kind of this offness of uh, that's really represented in the story, the offness of wealth, which, you know, when we think of Baroque music, when we hear Baroque music, we think about these beautiful, ornate castles. I mean, Baroque is known for its ornateness as co both compositionally and as a mode of decoration or style of even um, writing, right? So the music has that as an element to it, the sense of ornateness that immediately calls us to mind, of like, like a gilded chamber or something like that. But there is, yes, discordance in it as well, though it's not off-putting. It just, it it's refreshing to the ear in a way that also makes us question the whole the whole of what we're listening to you know it's it's not simply background music but it is a gorgeously composed piece it really is. And I think it would work awesomely, uh, you know, as part of a score for a film adaptation of The Mask of the Red Death, for sure. Uh, there are two other pieces that Hardy did that are 
interpretations of Poe's work. He did one for The Raven called Nevermore. That piece was probably my favorite of the three. That's uh, less of a, a Baroque violin feel and more of a, I think I would say a late romantic violin feel. It's a little slower on the on the tempo, uh, a little more soulful. It's less crazy, I guess. It's a little more soulful. Uh, I really liked that piece, but they're all worth checking out and uh, you can easily find them and uh, and do that. And I think on that note, I think on the note of, hey, go check out some of this music and let us know what you think. That is going to do it for this episode. Uh, eight pages. We talked for two hours about it. It's not quite a record <laughs> for us, I don't think, but it's it's close. But uh, that's going to finally do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. I want to take a moment to just thank you for getting the word about our shows out to people who you think might be interested in them or even foisting them upon people who might not be, but can find something to enjoy in them. And uh, just want to leave you with some encouragement to review our shows. If you haven't done that already, writing a review really helps us out and uh, we need more of them. So if you haven't done that yet, please do that. Yes. And of course, when we get to a certain number of reviews, uh, that's going to trigger a bonus series on H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu. So uh, it's a way to get more episodes, a way to get more content. But let me say thank you to everyone who does all of that type of work for us, writing the reviews, uh, telling people about us in, in person, on social media, in, in groups. That is so helpful for us in keeping the show on the air, letting us continue to do this, which we love to do. So we're really grateful for that. And a special thanks to everyone who participated in the contest and uh, the winners for uh, using their choices wisely. This has been a real blast to, to do all three of these things that uh, the people have selected here. And speaking of telling people about creative work, hey, if you've got something that you would like us to tell other listeners about, get in touch with us. We'd love to advertise your work for you. Next time, we're going to be back with the first of three episodes on The Waystation, which is chapter two of the very first Dark Tower novel by Stephen King. That is The Gunslinger. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.